0: The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. When we look about at the culture and society around us, we see many troubling things. It does not require any special foresight to see where our culture and our society will soon be. Troubling events and trends are bombarding us constantly from every direction, political, cultural, societal, theological, disturbing trends. For some of us, we may simply try to avoid thinking about these things by filling our minds with thoughts of sports or the Olympics or the latest fad or app, but when we consider closely what is going around around us, the blatant rejection of God and the despising of Christianity, and the turning away from a civilization that was largely informed by biblical principles, there are many troubling thoughts that can come to us. The days ahead can look dark indeed. Perhaps we have a subliminal feeling that the future bodes ill and we don't want to face it head on, and so we turn to these other things, but we have to face it. There's a sense of trepidation about what is in store for us and for those we love. We think of perhaps children, grandchildren. We may be concerned about this kind of society that they will live in. And while there is good reason with Jeremiah to mourn over our countrymen and over their hearts that do not turn to the Lord and are stubborn and unrepentant, we must recognize that any fearfulness or apprehension about persecution in the future, is completely unbiblical, has no biblical warrant, and is directly contrary to Scripture command. There's evidence for this in just about every book of the New Testament. This morning we're going to turn to First Peter. First Peter is essentially a manual for Christians living in a world that is hostile, sometimes violently so. In our time, we all need to know First Peter and to know it well. It was written by the Apostle Peter from Rome to Christians who were living throughout modern-day Asiatic Turkey. Its readers are described in the first several verses of the epistle as elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. These were men and women who had been elected out of the world. They had been purified by Christ's atoning sacrifice, and they were living as obedient exiles in a world that hated them and hated Christ. The whole epistle, as I have said, is a compendium of Christian response to the world. And Dale and Kurt have both preached helpfully on this in the past year. Kurt, three weeks ago, preached on how we are to live as pilgrims in the world and not to look toward this world, but to look for the heavenly country, our better country that is coming to us. But even as pilgrims, we may be concerned about the path that we take on our journey. We may think that it would be better for us to take an easy and a safe road on our pilgrimage to heaven. We may not want to live in constant mortar danger during our travels. But such would be a woefully incomplete understanding of Peter's thinking. The words to which we, are, we will direct our attention this morning are in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 16. The flow of Peter's thought really runs through verse 19 at the end of the chapter, but we only have time to cover through 16 today. In First Peter 4, verses 12 through 16, Peter gives six responses that Christians should have to opposition from the world. And all six flow from the theme of confidence and joy. My aim this morning is to turn your apprehension into expectation, your trepidation into excitement, your gloom into joy, your uneasiness into courage. Peter first commands us not to be shocked or surprised when violent persecution arises against Christians. The initial step in a proper response to affliction that Peter gives is to realize that it is regular. We see this in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter first addresses the disturbed and potentially downcast Christians as beloved. They're beloved by Peter, who has intense pastoral and apostolic care and concern for these saints. And more importantly, he reminds them of the love of God for them, the love of God that had elected them and by his foreknowledge from before the foundation of the world, that eternal love which had called them out, that eternal love that had sanctified them, and that eternal love which, by the Spirit, was bringing them to glory. It is probable that these believers in Asia Minor were not currently under direct persecution from the Roman government, but they were likely subject to occasional assaults or harassments from the Jewish population, and they were likely aware of a growing Gentile hostility toward Christianity. Surprise here refers to a mental state brought about the appearance of something strange or unfamiliar. Peter's first exhortation is to realize that what they are facing is regular for Christians. They are to not be surprised. It is strengthened here by their not reacting as if something strange were happening to them. The commentator D. Edmund Heber notes that the expression does not indicate a paralyzing shock, but a continuing attitude of bewilderment and astonishment at what is happening. What was happening is described by the word rendered trial, pyrasmas, which has the basic meaning of an attempt to learn the nature of something. It's testing something to find out What's there? What's in it? What it's made of? In conjunction with the word fiery, we get the, the idea of um, precious metal being cast in a, in a furnace and being tested to burn away and to melt away any impurities and alloys. As opposed to other words used in the New Testament for persecution, this word directs attention to the testing of believers and not so much to either the opposition and the hatefulness of those who are attacking them, or to the necessary, their suffering itself. But why should these believers have been surprised? Jesus himself told his disciples in John 15 that they should expect it to be hated and attacked by the world, just as he had been. Paul, when he was preaching through this exact same region, was telling the new disciples that it was only through much tribulation that they would gain entrance into the kingdom of God. So why were they surprised? It's possible that the believers to whom Paul, Peter rather was writing misunderstood the nature of Christ's protection. Potentially, they thought that Christ-protecting believers meant that they would never be subject to pain or open hostility or open attacks from the world. Of course, that's not what it means. Potentially, they were emotionally committed to the ideas of Christians living safely and securely in this life, just as the disciples prior to Jesus' death were committed to the idea of a Messiah who would bring in the, uh, a political kingdom immediately and throw off Roman, the Roman yoke of oppression. And so those disciples, they needed to have it pounded in again and again. Jesus needed to tell them that the Messiah would suffer and die and be resurrected. And so it may be the same thing where they're committed to this idea of Christians living safely and securely in this present life. And honestly, who among us can say that we don't desire to live safe and secure on our way to heaven? It's something that we all desire, and it's not a bad desire, but we cannot let that desire close our minds to what the Scripture and what God through His Scripture is telling us. Whatever the cause of the believers' surprise, and whatever may cause us to be surprised when persecution arises, Peter's instruction to them and to us is clear. Whenever opposition arises on account of the word, it ought to be neither shocking, nor surprising, nor mentally upsetting for us. And although this may at first appear to be a fairly minor point, I mean, this is merely a mental state that Peter is talking about. It's a very important point, point. it's a foundational point. If you're continually in a state of bewilderment and confusion, you're not going to be able to follow Peter's commands that follow. Suffering for Christ is not novel, and we should not consider it as such. It is one of the most regular occurrences in the life of individual Christians and of the life of the church as a whole, and we should not be at all surprised when it happens. The sooner and the more comprehensively we realize that persecution is a regular, a normal, a natural, and an important part of the Christian life, the better we will be able to respond to persecution when it comes. For a Christian to be surprised when violent persecution comes is like a man who is thrown into shock and confusion every morning when the sun rises. Not only is persecution the most regular occurrence that could happen, it's also very beneficial, and it brings blessing to all those who experience it, which is Peter's next point. For the Christian to respond to persecution in contrast to the state of astonishment that we must avoid, the positive command Peter gives us is in verse 13, to rejoice in proportion to our persecutions. In verse 13, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Our joy should increase whenever our opposition does. Rejoice here is the common New Testament word for rejoicing. Uh, The concept being expanded, the basic meaning, though, is simply to be cheerful. Now, at first glance, that seems like a strange thing for Peter to say. You're being persecuted, there's a fiery trial, and you're supposed to be cheerful. But it's actually more strange at first glance than that. Peter says to rejoice insofar, kathos, as you share Christ's sufferings. The basic idea of kathos is a proportioned relationship. It's a direct relationship. It could even be used as a monetary accounting term. Paul uses it in that way in 1 Corinthians 10, when he's talking about the Corinthians and their giving to help the Jews in Jerusalem, and he says that they should give according to what they have and not according to what they do not have. So it could be a monetary accounting term. It's a proportioned direct relationship. Peter's, of course, not asking, advocating some kind of Christian masochism where we enjoy pain for its own sake, which becomes exceedingly clear as soon as we see that the reasons that Peter gives for our rejoicing. Our rejoicing is not based on some perverted sense of pleasure, but on glorious scripture truth. The variable which should control our level of rejoicing is our sharing, our participation in the sufferings of Christ. This word sharing is the same word used elsewhere of the ordinance of communion. It's used of the fellowship of the saints. It's a sharing in, it's a partaking in, it's a communion with. Because we experience sufferings, on account of our union with Christ, our sufferings that come as a result of that union are properly called Christ's sufferings, because we have been united with Him. We have communion with Christ through our sufferings for His sake. Thus, our sufferings are not to be considered as adding to, they're not to be considered as adding to Christ's sufferings. They're not adding to His redemptive work. Is saving work. What they are doing is they are of the same type as Christ's sufferings. They come from the same source, the world. They have the same result, the glorification of the sufferer. They are, of course, different in that our sufferings are not wholly undeserved. Our sufferings are never half as intense as Christ's sufferings were. But nonetheless, there is an important connection here that Peter is making. The important connection is that our sufferings on account of the Word can properly and truly be called Christ's sufferings because we have been united with Christ. Edmund Hebert, again, notes that their living union with Christ involves not only union with Him in His death and resurrection, but also union with Him in the whole pattern of His life, which includes His sufferings. For righteousness, We see how beautifully practical a doctrine such as our union with Christ is. This is what gives us joy when we suffer because we know that just as we have been bound together with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, we know that he is in that same way bound together with us when we suffer for his sake. As Jesus makes clear in John 15, we would not be suffering from the world if it were not for our association with Christ. We would not be hated by the world if we were not Christ's. And if we, we would be totally... He says, the world would hates you because they hated me. If you were of the world, the world would not hate you. We have been united with Him in a death like His. We will be united with Him when we are raised to glory. And even now, we are united with Him in suffering like His. This is a cause for great joy because we know that if Christ, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising its shame, how much more ought we to, for the joy that Peter here sets before us, endure whatever comparatively minor sufferings that we go through and despise the shame that the world casts upon us. Because this joy that Peter sets before us is Christ's glorious return. This proportional joy is as though Christ has set up a balance scale, as it were. And all the calumnies, all the slanders that the world throws on us, all fall, that should weigh us down, fall on one side. But we are on the other side, and we are raised up proportionally to how we should have been cast down by whatever the world throws at us. If you work hourly, you know that what you make is directly corresponding to how long you work by how much you make for each hour you work. So with our response to persecution, rather than having an hourly wage, we should have persecutionly joy, if you will. Notice also how Peter causally links joy and suffering for Christ now with future joy and glory. It is those who rejoice in so much as they suffer now who will rejoice exceedingly, who will rejoice with exaltation when Christ's glory is revealed. The connection here is a necessary one. Rejoicing when we share Christ's sufferings now is a prerequisite for rejoicing when his glory is revealed and sharing in that glory. We could even say that Sharing in Christ's sufferings is a prerequisite for sharing in His glory. Peter knew the same truth that Paul did when he wrote to Timothy, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As we just saw above in verse 12, Peter presented the coming of affliction and trial as something that will happen, even if not immediately. It's a matter of when, not if. As we just saw, when the world attacks Christians, it is the normal expected state of affairs. The faithful slave will be treated like his master. The sum measure of suffering is a necessary attendant to true Christ's sufferings. Thus, those who do not share in his sufferings now will not rejoice when his glory is revealed, because his revealing will mean their judgment. But for the believer, when Christ is revealed with his holy angels and flaming fire, all the trials we have endured for now will be flee into the oblivion, will be cast away by the greater eternal weight of glory of which Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 4 and Romans 8. It is this confidence that allows us to glory and rejoice in our sufferings now. We see Peter speaking very similarly in the opening of this epistle in 1 Peter 1, verses 3-9. through Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. As we anticipate the future rejoicing with exaltation that we will have at the coming of Christ, we rejoice now with a rejoicing that is filled with glory. And who can conceive of the glory that will be ours? To see our Savior's faith, to hear our Master's appellation, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your master. To have perfect fellowship and communion with holy angels and with the redeemed saints and with the triune God himself. To be freed from the struggle against sin. This is a blessedness that we cannot comprehend and we cannot begin to imagine it. And insofar as our sufferings are greater, in that same proportion we know that we can experience greater eternal reward and we have a greater confidence that we truly are servants and faithful slaves of Christ. Mark this, if you as a Christian desire to increase your true joy, your sense of spiritual celebration, one of the important channels through which that will flow into your life is through persecution. Persecution. There need be no discouraged looking ahead to what is surely coming our way. Rather, there ought to be an expectant anticipation because we know that with trials, with opposition, comes glory, comes joy, comes the immense pleasure and wonder of serving our Lord faithfully through trials. At this very moment, or at the very moment, rather, when the world may think, that they are heaping upon us the greatest shame, the greatest reproach, the greatest uh, trouble. We know that we are actually receiving the greatest blessing. They are giving us the greatest blessing when they think they are giving us the greatest hurt because we rejoice in proportion to our persecutions. So in responding to and preparing for opposition, we are to realize that it is regular, We are to rejoice in it. And now Peter descends from the fiery, violent trials and persecutions to those that take a less uh, coercive and forceful nature, but can sometimes be more painful. He wants us to know that the blessings attendant on these come to us as well. In verse 14 he says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In responding to persecution, Peter tells us to recognize that we are blessed if reviled. The word translated insulted or reviled, it means to find fault with someone else in a way that insults the other. It can be either a fault that is actually present, or it can be a fault that is thought to be there, but it isn't actually there. So, for example, it's used in Matthew 10 when Jesus denounces the unrepentant cities in Galilee who had heard so much of his ministry and yet remained unrepentant. But most often it is used in the other sense where the fault found is not actually there. In this this case, it is always used either of people reviling Christ or of people reviling Christians for Christ's sake. They think the world finds fault in a Christian for our holding to the name of Christ, to the teaching of Christ, and to the life of Christ. They think that to be faithful to the whole of Christ's teaching, to the whole of Scripture witness, they think that to be a thing of shame, and they insult us and revile us for it. We, however, know it to be a thing of the highest honor, not because of anything in us, but because of the Spirit of glory and of God who rests upon us through it. The Holy Spirit is the here described doubly as being of glory and of God. By glory, Peter is likely referencing the glory of Christ, which will be revealed and with for which we wait with expectation. The Spirit, as the guarantee and the down payment of our inheritance, brings us a little bit of the glory now that will be ours in the future. This real and present Presence of glory serves as a buttress against the slanders of the world. The Spirit of glory's presence is the reason that we are blessed if reviled. The Spirit is also here described as being the Spirit of God. Luther, in his commentary on this passage, explains, Now the same Spirit, he says, rests upon you. And forasmuch as ye bear the name of Christ, it is slandered by them, for he must endure to be reviled and slandered to the highest degree. Therefore, it is not you who receive the reviling. It belongs to the Spirit, which is the Spirit of glory. Be not anxious. He will regard it and raise you to honor. This is the consolation which we as Christians have, that we may say, that word is not mine, this faith is not mine. They are all the work of God. Whoever reviles me, reviles God. As Christ says in Matthew 10, Whoever receiveth you, receiveth me. And on the other hand, whoever reviles you, reviles me. That the Spirit rests upon the Christian means that he is with us and he's not going to leave. The the word rests uh, means a cessation of activity. In this case, it's the cessation of the activity of movement. He's with us and he's stopped moving, which means he's never going to move away from us. The Spirit is, of course, present with all believers, strengthening, convicting, uh, explaining the Word, and empowering. But there is no qualitative difference between what the Spirit does in all believers and what He does in those under persecution. There is a quantitative difference. The Spirit works more. He strengthens to a greater degree. He strengthens the feeble. He upholds the weak. And He strengthens them to be resolute. The Spirit is not an itinerant helper and comforter who he comes for a little while, then he has to go make his rounds again, and it'll be a while before he comes back. The Spirit is on you at all times. He rests upon you. He is not moving. He is, as it were, not convinced by the world's slanders, and so he disassociates himself from us because he's convinced by the world's slanders. No, no. It is his resting upon us that causes us to be blessed when we are slandered and reviled. The important point that Peter is calling attention to here is that the Spirit does not decrease or end his presence with the believer in affliction. He is, not, um, is this not a result to look forward to with eager anticipation? Whatever the slanders of the world, God stays by our side and his Spirit ever rests upon us, giving us more grace for whatever tribulation comes our way. And so we must recognize that we are blessed. If reviled, And so, we are to realize that persecution is regular, we are to rejoice in it, we are to recognize, realize that we are rewarded if reviled, but lest his readers should think that this gives them a free hand to do whatever they want and do what they pleased, Peter adds a further set of commands to not remove the purity of their affliction, and this is in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. So Peter arranges his lists, his list of prohibitions, in two sections. The first, um, and the whole thing is with descending order of severity, and the first contains uh, definite civil crimes. Murder and theft have been punished in some fashion uh, by every society, even if some forms of murder or theft have been ignored by the, the legal code. And an evildoer is a very, it's a very general term. Here it's probably referring to every type of punishable civil crime that's not included in theft or murder. Peter states what really should be obvious. Christians are not above the law and they are to follow the law scrupulously whenever it does not militate against uh, the direct doctrines and teachings of Christianity. The next section is a bit more demanding. It's separated from the first section by the repetition of the preposition translated as. Uh, the word meddler, is, it's a compound word. The first part, uh, we get in English cognate in alloy, like an alloy in a metal. It's an, it's an impurity in the metal. It's something that's not the same as what the metal itself is primarily made out of. The second part is when where we get episcopal. It's often translated bishop or overseer. So the word could be literally rendered an overseer in other men's matters. This word only occurs here in the New Testament, very rarely in extra-biblical Greek, so it's difficult to determine with certainty, but that's the basic idea. It's somebody who's overseeing in something that's not really his to oversee. Uh, This is probably referring to something that's not something punishable, but it's, it's meddling, it's a troublesome meddler. It's somebody who's um, getting his nose in where it doesn't really belong. And Peter states here, again, that Christians are called to the highest standard of moral conduct. Loving one's neighbor does not only mean not doing punishable, committing crimes against them, but also not being a nuisance and, of course, even positive commands beyond that. But this phrase, and indeed this whole section, seems kind of strange for Peter to add. Shouldn't all these things, murder, theft, meddling, shouldn't all these things be already put out of bounds by a basic Christian morality? So it seems unnecessary. But I think experience sadly teaches us that it's very important. There is in all of us a tendency to, when we are attacked, to want to retaliate. We want to get back at the person who's attacking us. And I think especially when the attack is coming at us because of Christ, and the attack is also coming at Christ, we think that we have some justification. If Maybe we can indulge in, we can be vindictive just a little bit, just a little bit, because he's against Christ too, so we can be a little vindictive, right? But that's not at all what Peter's saying here. Peter is uh, putting all that out of bounds. What I remember not too long ago, seeing a long list of, court cases that were, these were supposed to be showing how Christians were being persecuted on college campuses in America. But a little closer examination revealed that every single one of the cases was actually a case of the supposed Christians suing the school. And there may have been a reasonable ground on a couple cases, but most of the time, it was patently ridiculous reasons. When one case, there was a Christian school newspaper that they were receiving funding from the school, but they apparently didn't think that that was enough funding, and so they sued the school for discrimination. That's completely contrary to Christ. It's completely unbecoming of Christ, because Peter, earlier in the epistle, said in chapter 2, verse 23, speaking of Christ, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We can't give in to the temptation to retaliate and respond vindictively when people attack us on account of Christ. This is probably especially uh, an inclination in American Christianity where we have kind of a a latent cultural Christianity and whenever that's attacked, we get all defensive and militant. But we must not react disproportionately to that. And uh, every time... Something happens that evidences our God-repudiating society. We shouldn't cry bloody murder as if Christians are being hunted down and burned at the stake. This is a tendency which we must resist. Paul, too, knew that this kind of attempted retaliation is a temptation. And he wrote in Romans 12, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And again later, Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. To be clear, this is not to say that we shouldn't take legal recourse when it's justified and when we have a good cause to do that. Paul himself, in his missionary journeys, would um, betake himself to the protection that was afforded him as a Roman citizen uh, as the occasion allowed it. But we ought not to consider the result of a case for civil protection to be Uh, necessarily important. The result doesn't matter so much. We uh, repose ourselves on God and we trust God for whatever He will cause to come to pass for us. This is a point that Peter also emphasized several times earlier in the epistle. In chapter 2, verse 12, he wrote, "...keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds." and glorify God on the day of visitation. There should be no good cause for a believer to be spoken against. Peter is calling us here to the standard of the prophet Daniel, against whom no evil could be found except with regard to his God. Again in chapter 2, starting at verse 18, Peter here is specifically addressing servants. He says, servants, be subject to your masters in all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. There is no benefit that believers can expect from God when we suffer for our own sins, our own evil that we've done. In fact... Peter, saying in verse chapter 3, verse 12, he quotes Psalm 34, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Far from resulting in blessing, when we suffer for the evil that we have done, it actually results in putting us in the category of those that God sets himself against. If believers want to respond rightly to persecution and to obtain the blessing that is theirs From enduring through it, they must not remove the purity of their afflictions. In addition to realizing that persecution is regular, to rejoicing in opposition, to recognizing that we are blessed if reviled, and to not removing the purity of our afflictions, the fifth response to trials for Christ's sake that Peter commands is to not regard yourself as reproached. And it is the first half of verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Suffering as a Christian is, of course, the opposite of suffering as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. For those who have followed the previous command and have maintained the purity of their affliction, Peter gives them the encouragement that they need experience no shame when they suffer if their suffering is truly because of their Christianity. And this is when the cause of hostility is confessing the doctrines of Christ, proclaiming the teachings of Christ, and living out in conformity with the life of Christ, even if some trumped-up false charges may be added as a smokescreen. Now, ashamed here is an interesting word. It's uh, used in, verse, uh, in chapter 16 of the Gospel of Luke of the dishonest manager who was... Not, who did not consider himself strong enough to dig, and he was ashamed to beg. He was in danger of losing his management position. And part of the result of being ashamed is the attempt to avoid the thing that causes shame. The dishonest manager, of course, he then schemed so as to not have to beg to do what he was ashamed to do. Often the word here translated shame is contrasted with confidence, The idea is that when you have confidence in something or someone, but then your confidence is not held up, they don't do what you expected them to do, then you are, in a sense, shamed for having put your confidence in them. An excellent example of this is found in Philippians 1, when Paul, speaking of his imprisonment for the gospel, says, beginning in the second half of verse 18, "'Yes, and I will rejoice.'" For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. We see here many of the same themes that Peter has been emphasizing, the rejoicing, the imperative to rejoice, the help of the Spirit, the holy indifference to the result. And what we want to take special note of here, under this point, is Peter's great confidence in his expectation, Paul's rather, great confidence that he will not be put to shame. We can illustrate the relationship between the shame that Peter is telling us to avoid and confidence in this way. If you have an investment that you're really confident in, this is going to make money, this is going to turn a profit, put a bunch of money into it, and then it ends up turning up losses. You're losing a bunch of the money that you put in there. You're going to be a little bit ashamed of the confidence that you had before in it. And the more you've boasted up the confidence, the more ashamed you'll be. You probably won't be too keen to have the subject brought up in conversation. If the in-law brings it up at Labor Day and keeps bringing it up, you're, you're going to get a little bit flustered. <laughs> you're not going to want that to come up. You're going to try to change the subject. that's the sense of being ashamed you don't want the subject to come up you don't want to talk about it you want to forget about it you don't want to have anything to do with it so that is the sense of being ashamed and contrastingly in not being ashamed we have confidence in our god to uphold us we have confidence in the truth that we proclaim we are eager to speak of it and to proclaim it and we have confidence in the ultimate vindication of christ and his people we know that we will not be disappointed in any of these confidences, and so we can be sure that we will not be put to shame. There are several things that Peter could be referring to in what we are exactly ashamed of. I referenced some of them already. It could be ashamed of our association with Christ, ashamed of teachings of Christ that whatever the worldview current at the time rejects. It could be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Or it could be ashamed of living the life of Christ. But all of these are clearly contrary to God's will and are here prohibited by Peter. For a believer to regard himself as a reproach, be ashamed of suffering as a Christian, is to avoid association with being a Christian and to fail more or less publicly to proclaim Christ and to publicly confess Christ. The exact opposite of displayed by the early church in Acts, which... When they were threatened by the Sanhedrin and the apostles were beaten, they prayed to God, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. We must follow their example at work, at school, and with our neighbors in our neighborhood. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we must be faithful to confess ourselves as Christians as it is appropriate to proclaim the gospel of Christ and never to shrink back from being associated with Christ. We must do this if we are to follow Peter's command to not regard ourselves as reproached. So having commanded the believers in Asia Minor and us with them to realize that trials are regular, to rejoice in opposition, to recognize that we are blessed if reviled, to not remove the purity of our affliction, and to not regard ourselves as reproached, Peter now moves to the final command that we're going to cover today, to reverence God or glorify God in the name of a Christian. We see this in the second half of verse 16. So, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The name of a Christian designates someone as belonging to, to the Christ party, if you will. It's somebody who's associated with Christ. They're a follower of Christ. This was originally, of course, applied by the unbelievers in Antioch to the Christians there. What united the disparate group of Gentiles and Jews, people from all social strata, what united them was their devotion to and obedience to Christ. This quickly became the dominant and indispensable word to describe Christians, to describe the faithful believers. Other words like Catholic have you kind know, of been taken up by errors, and we've kind of fallen out of usage by those who follow the Word of God. But Christian has always been retained by faithful believers because it captures the essence of what it is to be a faithful follower of God in this age. This command to glorify God, since it's contrasted, as we saw, with being ashamed, likely has the uh, intention of confidence Confidence in God. We saw very recently in Romans 4, didn't we, how Abraham glorified God because of his firm confidence in God's promises to him. Pastor Todd talked about how God looks good. We make God look good when his children are utterly dependent, utterly reliant, utterly trusting in him. So this is the unreserved confidence that we should have So the idea is that we give God glory by our confidence in his promises to uphold us, to sustain us, and to ultimately glorify us, by praising him that he has called us out of the world and allowed us to be called Christians, to be truly followers of his son, and by thanking him that he has granted us to suffer for his sake. This was no doubt, of course, a very personal command for Peter, because Peter himself, of course, Uh, On the very night when the Lord was betrayed, he received a direct warning that he was going to fall and he needed to watch and pray. Jesus himself told him, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. What did Peter do? He boasted in his own ability. He didn't rely on God. He didn't have confidence in God. He had confidence in himself. And so at the very hours before Jesus would suffer for Peter's sins, including this sin, Peter denied any association with Christ. He denied every knowing the man. He did not glorify God because he had confidence in himself rather than confidence in God. But Peter learned this lesson, and as we see throughout the first portion of the book of Acts, Peter is boldly declaring and glorying in the gospel of Christ regardless of whatever opposition comes his way. The Sanhedrin may beat him, Herod may lock him up and attempt to kill him, but Peter is boldly glorying in the gospel of Christ whatever is coming his way. We must diligently follow Peter's later example and boldly declare the truth of the word of God by our communication and our conduct and so glorify God, irrespective of the world's reaction. Peter thus commands six responses for persecution, when it arises, and arise it will, we are to realize that it is regular. We are to rejoice in it. We are to re- realize that we are rewarded if we are reviled. We are to not remove the purity of our suffering. We are to not regard ourselves as reproached, and we are to reference God in the name of a Christian. These give us no cause for fear or trepidation an abundant cause for rejoicing and joy and expectation as we await the coming revelation of the glory of Christ. In the somber days of September 1940, when Britain stood all alone, Russia was hostile, the whole of continental Europe was under Nazi power, America stood benevolent but aloof, Britain was all alone, it appeared to be dark days. And at this time, uh, someone at Churchill's old boarding school, Harrow, added a verse in his honor to an old school song. And one line in that verse said, Not less we praise in darker days. <clears throat> Churchill said nothing about the line at the time. But a year later, when he visited the school, he asked to have the word darker changed to sterner. Not less we praise in sterner days he said these are not stern these are not dark days these are great days the greatest our country has ever lived friends if there was reason for such an attitude of glorying in what he was going through on his part how much more so for us who are engaged in a cause that makes that is so great that it makes even the preservation of all human liberties and civilization flee into oblivion The prize for which we seek is not mere world peace. It's glory everlasting, eternal life, eternal fellowship with the triune God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Stern indeed are the coming days, and the coming trials will bring to light the true spiritual state of all. But these are the greatest of days, and we ought to rejoice with the early church and with the apostles and praise God that we are counted worthy to serve as God's slaves through these all great names and be always ready to suffer dishonor for the all-glorious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. O Holy Father, we thank you that you have called us out of the world We once hated you, we were once darkness, but you have made us light. We once were those who were against your Son, but now you have made us so that we are representatives of your Son. And Lord, we want to be conformed to his image, we want to be holy. We want to be holy in our conduct, we want to be holy in our proclamation of your truth, and we want to be faithful, Lord. Help us as we look ahead to what is coming to rejoice, to be expectant, to be eager in our anticipation because we know that you will bless us whatever comes and that the more we suffer, the more glory that we will have with you, the more glory we will share with you, the more we share in your sufferings. We thank you for this, O Lord. We pray that you would help us to be faithful. In your name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.